This is Warner Lewis, and welcome to another edition of Lewis at Large, smart talk and conversation with talented people from all walks of life. A reminder to subscribe to these Lewis at Large podcasts, go to Apple, Spotify, or Google Play. And if you like the podcast, hey, let others know about it. For context, my conversation with journalist and educator Glenn Frankel was recorded in March of 2021. We are extremely pleased to have back with us uh, for this particular section a, uh, a great guy, Glenn Frankel, uh, with a brand new work called Shooting Midnight Cowboy, Art, Sex, Loneliness, Liberation, and the Making of a Dark Classic. Glenn was on with us um, a few years ago with a work he did, uh, a retrospective, fascinating one about the movie High Noon. Should be an interesting conversation indeed. A little bit of background for uh, you about Glenn. If you have forgotten, he worked for many years at the Washington Post, and he won a Pulitzer Prize in 1989. He taught journalism at Stanford University, and he was and director was the chair of the School of Journalism at the University of Texas. He's also won the National Jewish Book Award and was a finalist for the LA Times Book Prize and is a Motion Picture Academy film scholar. He's a New York Times bestseller uh, with the work The Searchers and the aforementioned High Noon. And he currently resides in the lovely confines in Northern Virginia in Arlington. With all of that said, Glenn Frankel, how are you, my friend? Oh, I'm fine. It's nice to be back with you, Warner. You know, uh, let's talk a little bit about, uh, I, we certainly want to discuss the book and discuss your career in writing, but I, I'd like to get your take. Um, let's put the pandemic aside for a moment and act as if it didn't happen, or, or in a world without it, what is going on? What, what, what are sort of the new, and it, give us a quick look into the current state of college journalism. What, what's sort of being taught? What is sort of philosophically, are there common threads throughout the American university system as they teach journalism, what's changing and maybe what's sort of the same? Well, that's a really good question. I mean, as you know, journalism, the journalism industry has undergone such massive changes. The digital media revolution, which I think is just beginning, has already messed with the old business models. It's driven a lot of traditional places out of business. It's required journalists to be much more entrepreneurial and much more flexible and much smarter about how they go about their work. And so, you know, one of the tasks of journalism schools has been to equip students with those tools, teach them about how to do all the different things that the digital media require. Um, so they're shooting their own photographs and they're doing things online and they're streaming video. I mean, it, the list is endless. But most important, I think, has been to inculcate in these students a sense of adventure, uh, a flexibility about the platforms, and to convince people, you know, we're no longer in, say, the newspaper business anymore or even the radio news business. We're in the journalism business. We're in the information business. It's a little bit like the changes that took over, you know, transportation in the last century as we moved from, you know, horse and buggy and trains to cars. Uh, teaching, but at the same time, the sort of fundamentals of what journalism is, the critical thinking, uh, independent thought, the, the, the hunger to go find out information and then present it to the largest audience in the most accessible way, those principles haven't changed at all. 
And so we have to make sure that at the same time we're sort of preparing our students with the mindset and the ability to get out there and use the new forms. And we don't even know what the new forms will be in the next few years. It's constantly changing. You have to make sure that they have a fundamental understanding and, and, uh, and adopt really modes of critical thinking. Um, and we need both not only more flexible journalists, we need audiences. We need people in the audience who can figure out what real information is from fake information, right. who, you know, who question the sources of things. Where did that story come from? Whose interest was served by that particular piece? Why is that source anonymous? You know, someone who's going to, uh, you know, bring critical thinking to to the consumer side of being journalists. And I think universities have a really important role in that part of it. So it's a brave new world out there, and it's very challenging uh, and very difficult to see uh, how these students are going to make a living uh, doing it. But at the same time, it's more important than ever. Well, as you said, the landscape is certainly changing. The old days of working midnight to six at a little small-town radio station uh, are gone. Uh, probably the same being a reporter in a small-town daily is gone. Maybe now they've evolved to a small-town weekly. Is journalism still a highly sought-after profession? Is it still popular, so to speak, uh, with the students of today? Well, that's interesting because it has been. We noticed our, you know, our enrollments were going up in journalism. It's still kind of a sexy profession uh, and an independent one, and it attracts a certain kind of person uh, who wants to be there, you know, and the need for it is stronger than ever. I mean, you know, our democracy can't function without real information. I think we found that out over the last couple of years, how valuable some of these news organizations, like my old alma mater, the Washington Post, and the New York Times, and so many you know, news organizations are. Without them, there's no basis for making intelligent choices. So, yeah, the funny thing is that, that the students are still flocking. They don't necessarily know what they're getting into. A lot of them want to be sports journalists, and that's all good and everything, but not everybody's going to be an on-air, you know, color commentator. You've got to have people out. The people I'm interested in are the ones who are looking to really tell us things about our world and who are willing to take the risks involved in that. And I, I think there's still a lot of folks. We prided ourselves in Texas on giving people a very good liberal arts education with a digital media you know, overlay to that so that they could function in the world and have a skill that might be sellable. Uh, and not all of them are going to become journalists at the end of the days, but, but these skills are still very useful. I, I have great hopes because I, I loved my students. I think they're very, you know, they're smart people. I think they'll find their way, but everything is changing, as you point out. Well, we could talk uh, journalism for a long And you know what? We should do that. Let's, let's put that down that uh, maybe next time you're on, let's, we'll just explore journalism. But uh, let's get to the business at hand, uh, shooting Midnight Cowboy, uh, art, sex, loneliness, liberation, and the making of a dark classic. That is a highly loaded subtitle. Um, let's do this, Glenn. Um, give us a little bit of context about Midnight Cowboy, uh, the only film with an X rating to ever win Best Picture at the Academy Awards. Give us a little bit of context about the era and give us the context about the risk that was taking releasing that film. Well, Midnight Cowboy is based on a novel that came out in the mid-60s 
about a young guy from Texas who comes up to New York thinking he's going to become a male hustler. Not a very good business model, it turns out, for him. Uh, and the predators around New York take advantage and take most of his money, and he eventually hooks up with a uh, and becomes a, a wary friendship with a with a local uh, con, homeless con man, disabled con man, and and the story takes place in that in a New York City that's beginning to deteriorate after uh, it, it's. Uh, great prosperity and rise, and especially after World War II. And it, in any event, this movie is filmed in '68, comes out in '69, and it's a time of enormous changes going on in our country. I mean, politically, you know, we're in the midst of the Vietnam War. Robert Kennedy and Martin Luther King have been assassinated. Richard Nixon's in the White House. I mean, it's a time of great political and social anxiety, and a time of massive cultural changes. Uh, especially in the movies, you know, uh, people are looking for more adult en entertainment. Uh, the walls are coming down. Um, women's liberation, gay liberation, people are trying to get a foothold in this country. So it's a very rich uh, and unstable time. And Midnight Cowboy comes along as a sort of barrier breaker itself. It depicts uh, these two characters in a very uh, difficult Times Square, uh, a place not only of crime but of you know uh, prostitution and a, a world that's that is very complex and very adult, would say. And so, to get the money to make a movie like that, even on a low budget, was difficult. To be able to stick to the novel and some of the uh, sexual scenes and the way homosexuality is depicted in it and um, uh, was difficult. And then to come out with a movie that not only broke those barriers but was a critical success and ultimately won the Academy Award for Best Picture um, was a, an amazing feat, if you will, but it reflects, I think, the changes that were going on culturally uh, in the society, I think people were ready for movies like Midnight Cowboy, and movies like that were popular and you know and were successful. Well, Dustin Hoffman uh, had just come off of The Graduate, if I remember right, and John Voight uh, at the time. It's hard to imagine that now, but pretty pretty unknown. Was did Dustin Hoffman, for example, consider this to be an incredible risk on a? career that had just really left the launching pad he knew it was a risk but he welcomed the risk he's uh, both these guys are sort of new york trained theater actors i don't think either one of them thought he was ever going to be a movie star uh, hoffman certainly didn't he's five foot six very ethnic looking got that big nose um, you know, the standard for male uh, stardom in Hollywood was Cary Grant or Robert Redford. Uh, so Hoffman looked down, actually in many ways uh, denigrated being a movie star at first. But he gets in the movie The Graduate, and to everyone's surprise, it's a big hit. It's part of also these, this change in culture. It's, I would say it's sort of the first generation gap movie. And Hoffman not only stars and is very successful, he not only becomes a, a movie star, but he's kind of a counterculture icon. Uh, but he's hungry to do character parts as well. He wants to prove that he's not just a new celebrity, but that he's an actor's actor. That always was important to Hoffman. So he jumped at the idea of being in Midnight Cowboy. 
the funny thing is that the director of the film, John Schlesinger, really didn't want Hoffman or Voigt in his movie. Uh, he didn't want a new movie star, and he and he looked at the graduate at this guy Hoffman played this you know young college graduate, and thinking how this guy how is this guy ever going to play a bum in New York? But Hoffman showed him. He dressed up in a dirty raincoat. Uh, he walked with a limp. Three days of beard growth on his cheeks, and he and he met Schlesinger at midnight <laughs> at the automat, and by five in the morning, Schlesinger says Hoffman had convinced him that he was exactly the right guy uh, to fit in in Times Square, and gradually uh, Schlesinger agreed to hire John Voight as well. Um, these guys are terrific in this movie. They look a little like you know Don Quixote and Sancho Panza. I mean, uh, John Voight is six foot three, blue eyes, blonde hair. You know, in the cowboy outfit, he, he he's a stranger in New York, but a very interesting figure. And Hoffman is the Ratso Rizzo, this little guy limping along. And the two of them, as I say, they, they forge this wary partnership, and that's the heart of the movie and I think why the movie was so successful. When this was released, and it went through, undoubtedly it went through censors, it went through all kinds of studio execs, Undoubtedly, there were conversations, whoa, whoa, Jerry, get in here. You really need to see this first <laughs> before it was released based on just the pure content of the movie and that era where so many nerves were frayed. They were very, very tender nerves on both sides of the political spectrum and the social spectrum. Um, was the studio ready? We got to rush this out. This is going to be a big hit. Or were they also a little bit timid about promoting it, and getting it out there, even with these two up-and-coming stars? Look, nobody expected this movie was going to make money. Not even the people who made it, not United Artists who uh, were willing to make it at a very small budget. Originally, $1.1 million was all they were going to spend on this thing. But they, United Artists was an unusual studio in that they were willing to take chances. They were trying to find you know new formulas and new, new movies that would attract the younger audience. And uh, it's a time when Hollywood is desperate for new genres. I mean, the old cowboy movies, uh, among my favorites, you know, uh, they're the biblical epics, those things weren't drawing the younger audiences in. So studios, especially after The Graduate uh, in the late 60s, are willing to take some risks. They let Schlesinger make the movie he wanted to make. They left him alone. But once and once they saw it, they realized it had a very high quality. But they were still nervous about it in the sense that um, the the depiction of homosexuality and heterosexuality, for that matter, in the movie, even though there's no nudity to speak of, but it was pretty raw and transactional and a movie that you know without a happy ending. So that troubled uh, the studio heads, and eventually uh, the head of United Artists, Arthur Krim, actually consults with a. The psychoanalyst in New York who looks at the movie and says, "Well, you know, uh, the, the homosexuality in the movie could make it homosexuality attractive to young people. I'm concerned about that." Hollywood had just moved from the old, you know, censorship system of what was called the production code to the rating system. Uh, the ratings board gave Midnight Cowboy an R for restricted because even though it was an adult movie, they thought it was a very serious and important movie. But Arthur Krim re-rates it himself. United Artists are the people who rate it as an X because he's nervous about the homosexuality uh, right. in it. It's, uh, and to his great surprise, I think, 
the movie is not only nominated for Best Picture, the only, it wins Best Picture in 1970, the only X-rated picture ever to win Best Picture. So the, the gamble play, pays off both critically and in the end at the box office, but they were nervous about their own creation, no question. You know, at the time, uh, again, you don't know. It, it, like they said, they didn't expect this to make a lot of money. In your opinion, was it sort of the right, like kind of like The Graduate, was it the right movie at the right time? Absolutely. I mean, audiences were hungry for more adult themes. They were hungry for more complex characters, the sort of fairy tale romantic comedies back in the days of Doris Day, who I, I love, incidentally. Um, I don't mean to knock them, but that's not what the audiences were looking for. Dustin Hoffman fit that need in an interesting way, and he's one of the reasons this movie did so well is because there he was again, only this time not as the clean-cut graduate, but at, as this outcast uh, street person, and he's very, very good. John Voight fit this mold because he was such a good actor. Uh, so many things about this movie clicked, including the music, incidentally. Everybody's Talking is a, became a huge hit uh, on radio uh, at this time and fits the movie perfectly everything fit together and this movie uh, broke a lot of barriers took some risks and made audiences feel important in, a, in an interesting way so there you are it did it did much better than anyone had expected if you just joined us again yours truly warner lewis from the flight deck of lewis at large got a good one going here with our old friend Glenn Frankel, and by the way, when we say old friend, we mean young friend that we've known for a while. Uh, he was on with us uh, a few years ago with a release, a uh, fascinating look at the making of the movie High Noon, and now we're talking about a brand new work called Shooting Midnight Cowboy, uh, a brand new work uh, about Glenn. Glenn has a long history. He's a Pulitzer Prize winner for working for the Washington Post, taught journalism and shared journalism. Department, University of Texas at Austin, also at Stanford University. Uh, Glenn, as uh, as you were doing the research here, um, and again, I know you've seen the movie multiple times. It was a very popular movie. It has been shown many, many times. Um, what what new feeling or sense about this movie, or just sort of your observation about it? Maybe its place in movie history. Maybe it's watershed moment as a cultural icon, at least in American culture. What what maybe opinions, or did it did it reinforce opinions you already have, or did it add a new layer to what you were thinking? Oh, I think it definitely added a new layer. Um, I was surprised, you know, at the at all the barriers it broke. I was. surprised. And and I was especially it was especially interesting for me to see all the talent that came together around this movie. Um, not only Hoffman and Voigt, the actors, or John Schlesinger, but the screenwriter Waldo Salt, who had been blacklisted for his membership in the Communist Party back in the 1950s. How he comes to this and gives it just the right touch. And Waldo, incidentally, won best uh, screenplay, best adapted screenplay for this movie. Uh, the costume designer, Ann Roth, those memorable outfits, both both John Voight's, Joe Buck's, you know, uh, Western uh, cowboy suede coat and hat as he go, roams around Times Square, and Dustin Hoffman in those sort of fabulous shabby uh, clothes, the dirty white suit and other things. 
Anne Roth brings something very special to this movie. The casting of the supporting actors, all of them sort of great New York actors who, who come in and do scenes, usually with Voight, a brief scene, and are just fantastic. A woman named Sylvia Miles, for example, who's only on for like six and a half minutes near the start as an aging hooker. She's so good, she got nominated for Best Supporting Actress. I mean, all these talents who have come to New York to try to find themselves, if you will, to, to practice their craft, and, and they, they get involved in this movie, and those who are still around still talk about it as one of the great creative experiences of their lives. And you see that, and you begin to realize how much went into this film. And therefore, it, it's a groundbreaker because of when it came out and how it was made, but especially because I think of the enormous skills of the people who put it together. And it obviously did wonders for not only Dustin Hoffman, but also John Voight. Uh, and it certainly propelled them probably, well, they were going to be probably successful anyway, but do you not agree this one really pushed them up? Yeah, I enjoyed interviewing each of these guys, and they both spoke with great respect and generosity about each other, because after all, this is a joint collaborative performance that's so good, but also about the movie itself and about John Schlesinger. I mean, Void especially is well aware of the fact that this is the movie that made him a star and that gave him the opportunity to do other things. Hoffman, too. Uh, Hoffman, at first, when the movie was about to come out, was worried, nervous about it, because he'd been in a few preview audiences where some people had walked out at a certain scene, uh, in certain sex scenes that bothered them, that disturbed them. But he came to recognize, too, you know, uh, what a, an important movie it was, and also how good these guys were. I mean, they, they know, they still speak very respectfully about each other, even though they're very different people. Uh, who went on to very different kinds of careers. Nonetheless, they know this was one of the high points, and uh, it was very interesting to hear them discuss working together, competing with each, with each other at times, collaborating. Yeah, this was a great moment, you know, uh, and I don't know. I don't know about you, Warner, but I can't think of two male actors in a mainstream American movie who are better than these two guys. Right, right. I also kind of wondered, as you were talking when you interviewed them, what, what was sort of the feeling on the set? Because I've got a, my sense would be in a movie like this with a script this intense, with a story this different, with a story this, with this many layers, complicated and really exploring issues that were not really uh, being made by the mainstream film industry, the, the, the attitude and the environment on the set must have been unique as well. Well, it was. I mean... Schlesinger was smart. He had everybody uh, sit for rehearsals for a couple of weeks before they began the actual filming. And these two guys, these bright, young, you know, talented New York actors are doing a lot of improv uh, during the rehearsals. And he's even, Waldo Salt is there taking notes and they're even writing some of that stuff into the script. So that gives the movie an extra intimacy. They trusted Schlesinger and in the end he trusted them. He'd never worked with two actors like this before. Uh, two guys who were so intense and so involved. I mean, sometimes their intensity could get on his nerves, uh, and yet he, he, he used it. He was especially close to Voight, uh, but Hoffman, too, was, was brilliant in the movie. So the, you've got, they know there's a lot at stake, but at the same time, they're ready for it, and, um, and they, they glory in it. I mean, Voight talks about it as, and Hoffman talks about Voight saying, you know, this, I could see the joy 
he was getting from this. I mean, Voight didn't expect to get this part to begin with, and he, he really wanted it, and he really felt he could handle it. And, and he's right, he did. He's an intense guy, as you can imagine, and Hoffman is too. Um, so this was something they did together and something, again, it, they needed the trust of the director. Uh, Waldo Salt was on the set, and he was writing changes into the script whenever they felt they couldn't quite grab what the scene was about. This was really a collaboration between people hungry for this kind of thing. Well, it uh, we could talk about this for a while. We could also go back and talk about journalism for a while, but we are... Uh, <laughs> Uh, running out of time, so to speak. Again, the work, uh, an important one, uh, called Shooting Midnight Cowboy, Art, Sex, Loneliness, Liberation, and the Making of a Dark Classic uh, by Glenn uh, Frankel, award-winning Glenn Frankel. Glenn, uh, how can people pick up a copy? And also, uh, you've done a lot of writing. How can they find out more about some of the work you've done? Well, one place would be to go to my website, which is www.glennfrankel.com. It's Glenn with two N's. Thanks to my mom, that was her idea. Uh, and uh, you can find out about all three of my movie books there. Um, they're all of a piece in a way, but um, you can also click on to various places where you can buy the book or order it from online. It's at local independent bookstores too, which I think is the most important in many ways. So it's there, the reviews are there, other pieces of work I've done, there's a section of articles you can find out more than you ever wanted to know about my work and what i'm doing all right hey glenn thank you so much for uh coming back and uh, sharing part of your day with us and again uh, best of luck with this i would love to have you back on again well warner thanks for having me this was great well thanks for joining us for this installment of lewis at large we add new conversations every week and we like hearing from you you can contact us via email at warner f lewis one at gmail.com. That's WarnerFLewis1 at gmail.com. And you can find out more at lewisatlarge.com or on the Lewis at Large Facebook page. And remember to subscribe to Lewis at Large. Check out Apple, Spotify, or Google Play. Now go have a great day.